Uh, so let's look at these, uh, th this uh, event that happens in Nazareth, his hometown, uh, in verses 1 through 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom that has been given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not dishonored except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could not do any miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief, and he was going around in their villages teaching. So Jesus was in Capernaum. He left there. He went across the lake. He did some healing there. He came back to Capernaum, uh, and he, that was his base of operations. Now he's moving into Nazareth. So uh, Capernaum is the north side of the Sea of Galilee there, the, the, the very top, just a little bit northwest at the top of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but Nazareth was his hometown. That's about 20 miles southwest uh, of Capernaum. Remember, uh, in Luke chapter 2 says that that is where Jesus and his family settled uh, after they returned from Egypt. Uh, remember where they were told to flee there because Herod wanted to kill uh, the child. They, they fled to Egypt, and now uh, they come back, uh, and they live in Nazareth. That is Jesus' hometown. And Jesus lived uh, most of the, th the first 30 years of his life in Nazareth there working as a tecton, that's the Greek word, a tecton, uh, which can mean uh, a carpenter, somebody who works with wood. Uh, it can mean a stone mason. It can mean a, a builder. It can mean a craftsman. Uh, so Jesus could have been any one of those things. Probably, most likely, he was a stonemason, uh, and, and that's probably what he did. Uh, he would have apprenticed under his father Joseph while Joseph uh, was, was establishing the fam family business during Jesus' childhood years. And so you can imagine that if you live in a place for 30 years, uh, you're going to get a lot of local business, right? So Joseph and Jesus probably did a lot of work for uh, the residents of Nazareth. And so uh, these people knew Jesus, and they knew his family. And so you might expect that these people would welcome him uh, with open arms there uh, when he came back to them after all the things that he had done. But that's not what happened, is it? In fact, uh, this is the second time uh, in the Gospels that Jesus will be rejected uh, in Nazareth. Uh, you'll remember that Luke 4 records an earlier event where Jesus uh, comes to Nazareth and he stands up in the synagogue. He gets up to teach uh, and he quotes from Isaiah 61. This is in uh, Luke chapter 4. Uh, Jesus reads from Isaiah, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor." He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then Jesus sat down. He sat down, took his seat, and then he said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what did they do? They rejected him, right? Uh, they, they led him out to a cliff. They were going to toss him off the cliff and kill him for making the claims uh, that he made. And so in Mark 6, 
Jesus returns to Nazareth. Can you imagine? Uh, after they tried to throw him off a cliff, uh, here he comes back again. What an astounding act of grace to offer himself to them uh, another time. Uh, I would not go back to the place where they tried to kill me, I don't think. I'm, I'm funny that way. Uh, but Jesus came uh, back to, uh, to Nazareth uh, not to visit his family, right? So he came back. This was more of an official visit. He's coming presenting himself as a rabbi with his students, the 12 apostles, uh, in tow. Uh, Jesus had become a big deal by now, right? And so you might think it's a you know, hometown boy makes good. Uh, but no, it, that's not what it was. Uh, he, even though he was popular, uh, he was looked at suspiciously. But still, uh, being presenting himself as a rabbi, they invite him uh, to teach in the synagogue. So on the Sabbath, uh, he gets up and he, he teaches in the synagogue. Now, just contrast this synagogue in Nazareth with the synagogue in Capernaum. Remember, uh, in Capernaum, Jairus was the synagogue official there. So Jairus, he's responsible, he's a layman, but he's responsible to organize the worship services, he's responsible to maintain the building, uh, and so he's a fairly well-to-do guy. Uh, but it's his faith that sets him apart. It's his faith uh, that gives Jesus the will uh, to raise his daughter from death. Uh, but contrast that synagogue in Capernaum with the synagogue in Nazareth. Uh, Jesus' reception there in his hometown was quite different. He goes there. He teaches truth with authority. His own people didn't dispute anything that he taught. In fact, his teaching astonished them. You see this uh, in these verses? Uh, and so they didn't take offense to his teaching. And they didn't take offense to his miracles. They took offense to him. Uh, personal. This was personal. Uh, so notice the questions that they asked. Where did this man learn these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And such miracles as performed by his hands. You know, from all the evidence available, the conclusion is obvious. Like, you didn't need that sign that I showed you earlier, right? You can follow the path. He, they should have been able to see. Uh, this is the Messiah. All of this stuff, because he was not formally trained, uh, and he did not have any power of himself, it, it comes from God because he is God. And so Jesus has no formal training. Uh, his knowledge, wisdom, and power to do miracles have to come from God. And that is the obvious conclusion. But unbelievably, uh, they reached a different conclusion. Instead, they mocked him. Is this not the carpenter? Uh, is meant to highlight the fact that he has no theological training. He has no academic credentials that, that would justify him uh, holding himself as a rabbi. Uh, and calling him the son of Mary is also derogatory. We might not think that uh, in our culture. We might miss that nuance. But in their culture, uh, a man was always identified as the son of his father. And it may be that Joseph was dead by now, but even if that's the case, that would not have mattered. In that culture, uh, he would be called the son of Joseph, not the son of Mary. And so uh, calling him the son of Mary uh, was an insult and certainly meant uh, to call into question uh, the legitimacy of his birth, uh, as if to say, we know he's Mary's son, uh, but we don't know who his father is. And so they are digging at him. Uh, mocking him, uh, and it's not that subtle in that culture. Here's where we also learn uh, that Jesus had several siblings. Uh, from this comment, we know that Mary had at least seven children, right? Uh, Jesus, obviously the firstborn. Uh, Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born, but after Mary, uh, there are four brothers at least. Uh, James we know about, 
Uh, James was not the apostle James, but James uh, became a believer after Jesus' death, and, and James became the leader, the founder, or not, not the founder, but the leader of the early church. Uh, and Judas, we know, uh, he is the one who most likely wrote the book of Jude. So those two, uh, the, those two brothers uh, we know something about. Uh, Joseph uh, we don't know anything about, uh, nor do we know anything about Simon. Uh, but we also learn here that Jesus had sisters, uh, plural, so uh, at least two. Uh, so Mary had at least seven children uh, that we know about. Uh, and so uh, all of this contradicts uh, the teaching of some churches uh, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, right? You've heard that before. Uh, she had sexual relations with her husband Joseph, uh, and she gave birth to at least six children other than Jesus. Uh, she gave birth in the natural way, just like any other mother would, to at least those other six. Now, the people of Nazareth thought that since Jesus had the same kind of upbringing as him, as the rest of them, the same kind of families as the rest of them, uh, the same kind of blue-collar jobs that they had, that he could not be anything special. He was a commoner, certainly not their Messiah. And so they took offense at him. Uh, this word offense uh, is the Greek word scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal from. Jesus was a scandal to them. Uh, Jesus used this word uh, to refer to himself uh, when he called himself uh, somebody who would be the rock of offense. That is a scandalon. Uh, and so his ministry was a scandal. And it's not necessarily what he did that offended him, or even so much what he said that offended him, but that he was holding himself above them, that they should somehow hold him in higher regard than themselves, presenting himself as the Messiah. That's the thing that really caused them to take offense at him. You've probably heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, it, it means, you know, the more we know someone, the less impressed with them uh, we may be. Uh, and, you know, for people who had first met Jesus and, and saw the things that, that he did, uh, they would hold him in, in awe. Uh, but for these people from Nazareth who knew him for 30 years, they're like, well, he's just Jesus. He's just the stonemason, right? We, we know his, his mother and his brothers and his sisters. Uh, he's not anything special. And so they treated him with contempt. And contempt is a very strong word, isn't it? Contempt means uh, hatred, bitterness, meanness, and it's not just something you harbor in your heart. It's, it's outward, right? So they, they treated him with this outward contempt. They mocked him. They insulted him. They rejected him. And so as a result of this, uh, Mark records what Jesus said, uh, what he did, and what he felt. All three of those things. So what he said. This is what he said. A prophet is not without uh, or is not dishonored, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. You notice how that gets narrower as you go on, right? Uh, really drilling down into the people who are very close and even the closest to him, uh, from his hometown to his relatives and even in his own house. And we saw him being rejected in his own house in Mark chapter 3 when they came to, to get him because they thought he had lost his senses, right? Uh, so, uh, this, this mocking, this rejection by Israel uh, is, is typical of how Israel treated its prophets, right? Israel has a long history of having uh, rejected the prophets, and Jesus being rejected just continues uh, this tradition in Israel of rejecting and killing its own prophets. Uh, so that's what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus did and what he didn't do. He could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
Well, any time that we read that Jesus' power is somehow limited, it really should cause us to ask why. How could Jesus' power be limited in any way? Did their lack of faith hinder his power? Well, I wouldn't say so exactly. I don't think that's what is being conveyed here. It's not that Jesus didn't have the power to override their faith. He certainly could have done that if he wanted to because Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants. But here's where we see the necessity of faith to healing. Uh, Jesus allowed their lack of faith uh, to restrain his power. Uh, With Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, with Jairus and the woman with the hemorrhage, uh, the power of God made them well, right? Make no mistake about that. But, But it was their faith that made Jesus willing to do the healing. And here in Nazareth, without the component of faith, without their willingness to believe, Uh, Jesus himself was not willing to heal, and so he did no miracles there. Now, thinking about that, we should think about the purpose of miracles. Why does Jesus do miracles to begin with? Well, they were to point to his divinity, right, and to prove he was the Messiah. And whenever Jesus does something, he puts people on the horns of a decision. Who do you say I am? Do you reject me? Do you receive me? Well, those with hearts open to him received blessings, uh, and they received salvation. Uh, But those with hardened hearts became even more hardened, and they brought condemnation on themselves because they refused to believe, because they had no faith. And yet, Jesus still healed a few here, didn't he? Mark almost talks about this as an aside. Oh, oh yeah, and he healed a couple people, right? Like, Like, that's no big deal. But whenever Jesus heals someone, anyone, that, that's a very big deal, isn't it? But, but Mark meant to contrast here uh, the few who had faith uh, with the overwhelming majority of people who did not have faith, who brought condemnation on themselves. And the results are very different. Uh, Jesus healed those with faith uh, and did not heal those uh, without faith. And he left them in their unbelief. So what Jesus said, what Jesus did, what Jesus felt. He was amazed, maybe your version says marveled, uh, at their lack of faith. You know, only two times in the Gospels does it say that Jesus marveled about anything, and and both times it has to do with faith. Uh, Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith when the centurion said, uh, Lord, just say the word and he shall be healed. My servant shall be healed. You don't need to come to my house. Uh, Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. So that's one time. And here is the other time. He marveled at their lack of faith. So how discouraging, how insulting uh, to Jesus that in his own hometown, uh, these people rejected him. But this entire episode foreshadows what is coming, uh, not only in the next few verses, but in the, in the whole of Jesus' life. Uh, these next few verses, or what's happening here, foreshadows the highs and lows in, of ministry that, that the apostles themselves are going to see in the next few verses. Uh, they're going to be rejected by some. They're going to be received by other. Ministry has highs and lows. Uh, but this also uh, especially foreshadows Israel's final rejection of Jesus and looks forward to his crucifixion, uh, where they will finally reject him and he will go to the cross for their sins. And Jesus, knowing that that is probably only mere months away, uh, he needs to prepare these disciples for their ministry once he was gone. And so they left Nazareth for ministry in the surrounding towns. 
And you could say that the disciples' real schooling doesn't begin until now, until verses 7 through 13, when Jesus sent them out. So uh, we saw no faith in Nazareth. Let's look at some faith uh, in the surrounding towns of Mark verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. And he summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they were to take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. He added, don't wear two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people are to repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So uh, let me point out to you that, that this these few verses here are the beginning of another one of Mark's sandwich stories, right? We've seen a couple of them before. Uh, in this particular one, uh, we have a, as the piece of bread, the disciples are being sent out. And then Mark is going to interrupt this story uh, with the story of how uh, Herod killed John the Baptist. And then he's going to return to this story uh, and, and talk about the results of the disciples' ministry. Uh, and that'll be at the, uh, t- towards the middle verses of uh, the chapter here. But I, I wanted to put these verses with, the, uh, with verses 1 to 6 to contrast what happens here, the, the faith of these folks uh, with the lack of faith uh, in the people of Nazareth. So I'll remind you about the sandwich next week, but I want to I talk about this, uh, these verses here today. Uh, these, these disciples, uh, you know, they went out in faith, and the people who received the disciples received them in faith. Uh, and Jesus was able to heal them through the disciples, even though he wasn't even with them. And so let's just focus for a second on the disciples. You know, it's not very often in the Gospels, and particularly in Mark, that the disciples get it right. We agree with that? I mean, they're constantly misunderstanding his mission, uh, misconstruing what he's doing, missing the point of his teaching. Uh, they, they get it wrong almost all the time. But here, they obey in faith, and the results are amazing. Uh, This is, uh, you'll remember back in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus called his disciples, he said he had a purpose for them, for calling them, he said, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So that was in chapter 3. Since then, Jesus has been encountering all kinds of evil, all kinds of sickness, even death, and he's doing all kinds of of, of miracles through this, right? Casting out demons, healing sickness, even raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And while this is happening, the disciples are just cheerleaders, right? They're bystanders. They really don't have much of a role in this. But in verses 7 through 13, it was time for them to get their own hands dirty. That was going to be the thing that launches them into ministry. So Jesus sent them out to fulfill the purposes for which he called them in chapter 3, to proclaim the gospel, to heal, and to cast out demons. Now remember, these disciples are just regular guys, right? They don't have a whole lot of understanding. They're very confused by Jesus's mission uh, and, and, you know, it's one thing to be with Jesus as he's doing all these incredible things. It's another thing completely to be sent out without him and to be expected to do these things, right? I mean, if Jesus sent me out and said, I want you to go raise the dead, I would be like, how? How am I supposed to do that, right? And so this is an act of faith that they are going to go out and do this. Uh, and so 
Uh, the people that they would meet, you know, they had probably heard of Jesus, but they didn't know, you know, they didn't know Peter, they didn't know James, they didn't know John. These are just Jesus' sidekicks. These guys had no special training or power of their own. Uh, and so Jesus, knowing that, sends them out in pairs, right? One, for support, uh, but two, because, uh, as the uh, law says, uh, the proof of any matter is confirmed by two witnesses. So they go out together, uh, two by two, uh, validating the proof of their message, but with two people. And yet still, whatever they needed would have to be provided uh, because Jesus didn't let them take anything, uh, did, did he? And so the first thing that Jesus gives them is his authority. And that's the biggest thing that he gives them. You know, years ago, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, Paul, was uh, working for a Christian ministry and he was doing fundraising. Uh, and as a thank you to his largest donors, uh, he had booked an all-expenses-paid weekend in Kiowa Island, South Carolina, to play golf. And uh, two of the guys who were supposed to go on that trip, uh, one of those guys owned a private jet, and he was flying out of Teterboro Airport, which happens to be about 10 minutes from where we used to live uh, in northern New Jersey. And at the last minute, uh, this guy and his friend backed out. So my brother-in-law, Paul, uh, calls uh, his brother, Tom, and me and says, how'd you like to take a private plane uh, to Kiwa Island and play golf for the weekend? And we were like, uh, yeah, we'd like to do that very much. Uh, so we did that. We drove to Teterboro Airport and we, you know, we bring our golf bag and we walk onto the tarmac and we walk onto the plane like we own the place and, and the, the pilot and the crew were waiting for us to take off. Can you imagine such a thing? Uh, that, that they would wait for me to, to take off. So what a nice change that was. But you know, we were just regular guys. Uh, I had no authority of my own to get on that plane but I went with the authority of the guy who owned the plane, who said to the crew, you treat this guy like you would treat me, even though he's a nobody, right? And so uh, they treated me uh, like they would have treated him for two hours at least anyway, as we flew down uh, to Kiowa Island. But that's what the disciples did in these verses. They went forth with Jesus's authority. They had no power of their own, but they went with Jesus's power and they acted with it. That's the thing. They acted with it. And, and so uh, that is where we see the results. And, you know, this is the first time that these disciples actually acted as apostles, right? The word apostle means sent one. They had not been sent ones yet until now. Now they were being sent. And in their culture, the one who was being sent carried all the authority of the one who sent them. And so uh, they had the power and authority that Jesus gave them over unclean spirits. And you can imagine the disciples had already seen a couple of encounters with unclean spirits, with demons. And I'm sure they were terrified that they would have to go and encounter these demons, face them themselves without Jesus being present. But they had his authority. Uh, and, and in faith, uh, they went out with it. The next thing they would need are supplies, right? Jesus told them, take nothing with you. You can't take anything. No bread, no food, no luggage, no money belt. They couldn't even bring an extra tunic. Uh, a tunic is the outer garment of clothing that, that they would wear. And sometimes they would wear an extra one in case they didn't have a place to sleep at night because it gets cold out there. So they would use that extra tunic as a blanket. So they weren't even allowed to take that. They could take a walking staff, uh, which would help them walk, and it could also be used as a weapon uh, in case uh, that was necessary. Uh, they were going into hostile territory, and who knows uh, what might have happened. 
But all this required that they depend on God. They had to depend on God for everything they needed, even lodging. They had no place to stay. Uh, And so even where they would stay would have to come from the generosity of others. And when somebody did agree to put them up, uh, they weren't to keep looking around for better accommodations, right? If you go there, uh, you stay there. And if somebody's happy to have you, well, then you stay there, even if somebody else offers you something better. Because to leave uh, that other person's place would would be to bring shame on them and to be rude to them. And they were not allowed to be rude, even though they could expect that others would be rude to them. Uh, And uh, that's true because not everyone would roll out the red carpet for them. Uh, They were going to encounter opposition. They were going to encounter rejection. And when they did, they were to shake the dust off their shoes as a testimony against those people and also as a warning to them. You know, the act of, of taking off your shoes and shaking the dust off of your shoes Uh, That symbolized the Jews returning to Israel from foreign lands. They would be out in the pagan world, and they would come to the border of Israel, and they would symbolically take off their sandals and shake the dust off of them so as uh, symbolically not to taint Israel with the dirt of pagan countries. And so this shaking of dust that is going on here implies that uh, the people who rejected uh, Jesus were like the pagans who uh, were, were going to uh, reject Jesus. And of course, uh, Jesus knows when he's be, being rejected, uh, even though uh, he wasn't there to see that rejection. And that rejection has eternal consequences. So what about these disciples who become apostles here? Uh, in fear and much trepidation, I'm sure, they went off two by two. Uh, none of the gospels record who was paired with who or where each of them went, Uh, But we do know that just the simple act of leaving, uh, you know, Jesus is standing there and you walk away from Jesus two by two to some foreign land. Who knows what you're going to encounter? Even that in itself uh, was an act of faith. And they they were entering into foreign lands, uh, taking a message with them that we know in retrospect now has been largely rejected uh, for 2,000 years. And these same apostles would be killed uh, only a few years later uh, for spreading this message in the years to come. And so faith was absolutely vital to their journey. And I'm sure they were afraid, but I think it's telling that none of them backed out. And they did exactly what Jesus did. They proclaimed the good news and preached that people should repent. To repent simply means to turn away. Uh, to do a 180 from from what you were doing, uh, which was sin, and now turn toward Jesus, who uh, can save you from your sin. Uh, And so uh, a message like that is going to quickly gain adversaries, right? Uh, How many people do you know who like to be told that they're sinners, right? Nobody likes that message, and that's why our gospel uh, is is a difficult one. That's why it faces so much opposition. But if people don't understand their sin, They will not understand their need for a savior. So they preach that people should repent. And they also cast out demons and they healed the sick. And so uh, these apostles uh, mimicked Jesus, right? These were the hallmarks of Jesus's ministry, that he would preach the gospel, that he would cast out demons, that he would heal the sick. And the apostles went with Jesus's authority and power, and they experienced the same results or for the people who they met who had faith. Remember all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, when Jesus was calling these apostles for the first time, he said, come and I will make you fishers of men. 
And that's what they were doing in these verses. They were making fishers of men. And we'll see the results of their ministry next time. Uh, But for now, uh, let's close with a few applications related to our faith. And the first one is this. Uh, Don't allow misperceptions about Jesus to cause your faith to waver. You know, Jesus doesn't fit nicely and neatly into little boxes that we create, right? The people in his hometown, they thought they knew him. Uh, These people should have been insiders to the kingdom, and yet they find themselves outside the kingdom of God because of their misconceptions. Jesus could not be our Messiah because he's not what we expect from our Messiah, and so they put Jesus in a box. You know, sometimes we put Jesus in a box too. Uh, We expect things from him that he never promised, like lots of money or good health or a happy marriage or a long life. Jesus never promised any of those things, right? He promised that if we believe in him, we will have eternal life and we will spend eternity in heaven with him. And he will deliver on that promise. We will never fully understand, you know, why we suffer certain things in this world. Uh, God is a mystery in so many ways, but he has revealed enough of him, about him to us uh, so that we would love him and worship him and trust him. So don't allow misperceptions about Jesus to cause your faith to waver. Don't allow Jesus' physical absence to cause your faith to waver. You know, we don't see Jesus, do we? But his physical presence is not necessary for his power to be present. Uh, The disciples needed that lesson, right? Jesus sent them away, uh, and they had to trust in faith that they were going to go uh, with his power and do great things in his name. And that's a lesson these disciples would need because in just a few months, Jesus was going to depart from them forever. Uh, And so as they looked back on this episode and other episodes like this, uh, they would remember that Jesus's power is present even though he is absent and that all they needed was faith. And that's what we need too, right? We don't see Jesus, but Jesus is alive. Jesus is everywhere. And in fact, his Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And he promised us that the Holy Spirit would empower us to become more like him and to do great things that will glorify him. And Jesus will deliver on those promises too. So don't allow misperceptions or physical absence to cause your faith to waver. Don't allow your needs to cause your faith to waver. You know, it is awesome that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's all we need for all eternity. But for these few years that we live on earth, uh, we do have physical needs, right? We need food, clothing, and shelter. And the disciples learned on this journey that, they, that Jesus can provide for anything that they need. So have we learned that lesson? We often get worried when money is tight or when the prognosis isn't good or, or when relationships go awry. Jesus proved to his disciples that he can provide everything they need. And he's also proven to you and to me a thousand times that Jesus can provide whatever it is that you need. And he will provide again according to his timing and his will. So don't allow misperceptions, physical absence, or your needs to cause faith to waver. And last, don't allow opposition to cause your faith to waver. The disciples learned that even though Jesus ordained the mission, that did not mean that the mission was going to be easy, uh, and they could expect opposition. Uh, Many would not receive them as they took an unpopular message into hostile territory. Now, we're going to face opposition too. In fact, the world, as you know, is under assault from Satan right now. 
And I don't know if I've ever in my lifetime seen anything like this, uh, where satanic opposition to the gospel and to Jesus is so high. But even so, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. God is still in control. God is still sovereign. Whatever is happening in the world, God is allowing it for some purpose that will ultimately bring him glory. And so we have nothing to fear, and we have no reason to allow opposition to weaken our faith. So no matter what you encounter, uh, whether it's misperceptions, physical absence, your needs, opposition, don't let anything, don't let anything cause your faith to waver. You know, I started out this message talking about that unnecessary sign near our house, right? This is a superfluous sign because the terrain is so obvious. We can all see very clearly how the path winds. So why do we need this sign? Well, the same lesson applies to life. Jesus has done all we could ever ask of him to validate himself as the Messiah and to prove his love for us. He left heaven. He became a man. He lived a sinless life uh, and then died on the cross for our sins. And he empowered his disciples' ministry. He inspired the Bible uh, so that we would believe. So, brothers and sisters, we don't need another sign. We don't need more proof. We need faith. That's what we need. We need faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for all that you did through your apostles' ministry, Lord. I can imagine them with mouths agape as you told them that they were going to go out and do this work in your name. Uh, Lord, would you give us the same faith uh, to go out and do that kind of work, Lord, that we would trust that you are with us, and, and Lord, that we would trust that, that you will cover our needs, and Lord, that even though we face opposition, uh, Lord, we will bear much fruit uh, if we only have faith uh, to believe that your promises are true. Lord, we thank you for this uh, text, and uh, Lord, may we take these lessons to heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.